0: Kids, take out your kids' bulletins. Make sure you have it there. We're going to be referring to your translation throughout uh, the sermon today. We'll be continuing our journey this morning through the book of Ruth. This morning we'll be looking at Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. It's printed for you in total in the ESV. Before we get there... I want everybody to keep their hymnal open to the hymn we just sang. I want to tell you a quick story that's happening in church world right now. You may not have seen it. It didn't make make CNN news or anything like that, but it's made church world news that a very large denomination is redoing their hymnal, and there's been a controversy over this specific hymn. The fact of the matter is is that this hymn will will not be appearing in their new hymnal because uh, Mr. Getty and Mr. Townsend will not let them put it in their hymnal. Because their hymnal committee asked and sought permission, if you'll look down the second verse, you look down on the third line, it says, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And this denomination felt that that would be a little too offensive to many of its members, and so it asked to replace it with the love of God was magnified. And Mr. Getty and Mr. Townsend refused to let them make that change, refused to license it, so this hymn will not be appearing in their new... And I bring that to your attention, not to poke fun, not to make fun, but to recognize that there are aspects of God's character, let's call it, that make us uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about God's wrath, the fact that our sins are an offense against a holy God and that He has every right to be angry about it. We don't like to think about that. We like to talk about the positive stuff more. And I bring that to your attention because... As we go through this text today, we are going to see some aspects of God's character that aren't always the ones emphasized in the versions of Christianity that people tend to be most familiar with, the popular ones, the big church ones, that we're going to see some things about God that might make us a little uncomfortable, that there are what we would call dark providences along with the light providences that sometimes God takes his people through difficult things as the song we did for the offertory says that sometimes when we ask God to make us grow he doesn't do it in one big poof of enlightenment but he does it through making our life very very difficult and so we're going to see that today I want to remind you of where we've been before we jump into this text We're talking about Ruth and Naomi. We've been focusing on Naomi primarily in chapter 1. It doesn't really focus on Ruth until chapter 2. Naomi was a Bethlehemite who with her family got up and went to Moab because there was no food. She repented from Moab and decides to go back home. She tries to send her daughters-in-law back to what she herself calls the good life of rest In Moab, finding husbands, finding sons back in Moab. She basically says, look, there's nothing good for you in my God. There's nothing good that awaits you with my people. Go back to your pagan ways. This God has nothing for you. But she still claims that God will bless you, God will take care of you, but there's no good here. And so we saw how she hasn't abandoned the faith as much as she is going through something very difficult, and she's basically saying, I know you're real. I know you're there. I just don't like you very much right now, God. But I'm not going to give up and say you don't exist. And Naomi sees that. Excuse me, Ruth sees that faith and she grabs on and she refuses to leave. And we saw last week, she makes a confession of faith in Naomi's God and claims to be one of Naomi's people. And so she is going to go with Naomi and... Our text today picks up right after her confession as they're walking on their way <clears throat> to Bethlehem. Hear now God's word from Ruth chapter 1 verses 19 through 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Naomi. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's go to God in prayer before we go to His Word. Oh, Lord God, as we come before Your Word, Lord, we do ask that You would open this text up to us. We desire truth, Lord, for our growth, for our transformation. Would You show us again Your Gospel through this text, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to know where we're going to go today. You know, I like to kind of give you one sentence to hang your hat on to help everybody pay attention to where we're going. And here's what we're going to talk about today. It's this, that God will do whatever it takes to restore his wayward children. And that sounds really good, but as we're going to see, sometimes whatever it takes means things that we don't necessarily like. So as we jump into that, we'll see, first thing we're going to see here is that God breaks his children from idols. Our text begins with Naomi and Ruth (coughs) excuse me they make it back to Bethlehem they've walked the 50 miles from Moab and as they're entering into Bethlehem the whole town apparently seems to notice it makes a big stir everybody sees what's going on boys and girls hope you're paying attention look with me at your verse 19 here's what's happening says Naomi and Ruth walked to Bethlehem and when they got there the whole town was excited the women kept saying Naomi's back you see, boys and girls, school's going to be starting in a little while. I want you to think about that friend who told you back in May that they're not going to be there anymore. And all of a sudden you get to school the first day and there they come walking into class like, you're back, you're here. See, they were so excited that their friend was back. Wow, Naomi's here. Because she was a small town. She was part of a prominent landowning family. It was only 50 miles away. People probably knew that her boys had died their husband had died and now here she is and it's big news and if we're to understand what's really going on here little quick hebrew lesson i'll keep it short i promise the word naomi is not just a name it actually means something like for instance if you know someone whose last name is carpenter you know that way back in their history someone in their family worked with wood right well so too naomi actually means my delight Or another way we could say it is it means delightful. So whenever you said Naomi's name, it was the word delightful. So when she comes to them, now we understand a little bit what's going on. Look with me again at verse 20 that we just read. They said to her, oh, wow, Naomi's back. And she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So the Hebrew word there, Naomi, means delightful. Mara means bitter. So she says, look, don't call me delightful. Call me bitter. Because God has made my life bitter. Here's how he put it for the boys and girls. It's up there for you, boys and girls. Naomi, whose name means delightful, told them my name is no longer delightful. Call me bitter. Since God the Almighty has made my life bitter. Are we okay with that last little phrase? Are we okay with someone saying, God has made my life bitter? Or is, is there a part of her heart that wants to stand up and say, "Well, whoa, 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 you know, be careful. Don't, don't, don't blame God for the bad stuff. But See, she's not afraid to say it. She says, call me Mara because God has marred me. I want to be very clear here. Make sure we don't read this with the wrong mindset. She is not complaining. She is not whining. She is home. She's back with God's people. All these people she's talking to right now went through the same famine. They understood how God disciplines His people. Naomi is honest about where she is. She's giving credit to God. She's saying, my life stinks and God did it. Last week we saw that her life was a testimony to Ruth. Here is her verbal testimony to her people. And it's the same testimony. My life stinks. God is responsible. Dear Christian, I want to ask you something. Do you have a place where you can do that? Do you have... The freedom to do that? Will you let yourself say that when things are going wrong in your life? Last week we saw the temptation to kind of make God more palatable to unbelievers. That we we want to make sure that, you know, if we're around Moabites and something bad happens, well, we got to make sure we keep everything nice so we can sell Jesus better. We got to make some emphasize the uh, the pros, not the cons, right? Well, here's the other temptation. No longer is she around a bunch of pagan Moabites. She's around fellow believers. And The other temptation is to what? We all got to fake it and make sure we, everybody thinks we're a good Christian, right? We can't, we can't come to church and be honest about our struggles because they might judge me. So I'm at church now. I want to make sure everybody thinks I'm super Captain Christian. Oh, my life's good. Everything's great. Don't look here at this junk. But yeah, look here at the facade. Everything's good. You see, we're tempted to polish God up. When we're talking to unbelievers and we're tempted to polish ourselves up when we're talking to believers, aren't we? See, this is the thing that we're talking about all the time, it seems like. This is this traditional American moralism that has been in churches for close to 100 years versus the gospel moralism is all about performances it's all about appearances you know fake that you're a happy christian if you don't have it because everybody knows if you're a christian you'll be happy but there's no gospel there whereas the gospel is about recognizing our performance doesn't matter what matters is the performance of christ and then he changes us and then by his changing us in the gospel we then are empowered to obey as opposed to faking it so we look good See, in the gospel, you're allowed to have struggles. In the gospel, you're allowed to have bad things happen, especially while you're seeking growth and maturity. See, if you can't be honest about your doubts and your struggles in your Christian life, then you're probably trying to perform under moralism. You're not living in the gospel. If you sat there a few minutes ago listening to the words of John Newton, going, how can he be saying these things? What do you mean that God with his own, own hand was aggravating my, my, my woe, was aggravating the bad things in my life? God would do that to me? No, God doesn't do that. Or the idea of you ask God to give you a more mature Christian life, and what does he do? He comes in and says, all right, and he just starts messing everything up to show you where you're putting your false hopes, your false loves. Is God allowed to do that? Are we allowed to proclaim the wrath of God must be satisfied through Jesus Christ, or do we always have to put a positive spin on it? See, that's what Naomi's going through right now. She is back with her people, and she is not afraid to say, you know what, God has been rough on me. I am not happy with what God is doing right now, but He's still God. I'm not abandoning Him, but I'm I'm not thrilled about this covenantal walk right now. Do you give yourself the freedom to vent covenantally? I can't think of any other way to say it. Do you have a place to do that with other believers? I hope you do, because that's that's part of the Christian walk. And if you don't have a place like that, come see me. We'll help you find one, or we'll make one together. And as we talk more about Naomi's struggles with God's providences, there's something else I have to be very clear about here, because we will miss this one too. Bitter is an emotional state in English. It is not in Hebrew. She is not describing an emotional state. She is not saying, don't call me delightful, call me resentful. As we all read that, right? You immediately said said resentful. You didn't say bitter. Okay, when you read this, you shouldn't think emotional state. You should think taste. You should think, oh, the phrase that we use in English, that was a bitter pill to swallow. We don't mean resentful when we say that, do we? Something bad happens, oh, well, it's a bitter pill. No, it means it was hard. It was difficult. See, Naomi is saying, God's providence has made my life bitter tasting. She's not resentful. The emphasis is on the power of God. It's like, this powerful God has used his power against me. She uses the term almighty here in verse 20 and verse 21 look at me she says the almighty has dealt very bitterly with me and then she says the almighty has brought calamity upon me she uses those two terms specifically in her in this showing there's a powerful god at work here and his power has been directed against me really in context this is a confession of faith that god is real and god is there I'm overemphasizing this because I know that deep down we keep thinking that's resentful. She's complaining. This is completely not a way someone who speaks English would talk. So I'm trying to help you get out of that. She is saying my life is bitter tasting. The powerful God has made my life bitter. You see, what this is called is something that we don't have in English. This is called a lament. Lament. Many other cultures have a, a way where they can come and when bad things happen, they can wail and they can say it like it is and people understand that they are not abandoning the faith. They're not, they are just complaining the way things are. It's called a lament. We don't do that. We're, 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 we're big into emotional upheavals, right, at sports events and political rallies, right, for rebellion or for scoring. Man, let it all out. But if it's a negative emotion, ooh, you better keep that inside. We don't, we're not comfortable. I mean, when's the last time you saw at a funeral... Usually the wife just lose it. And people just let her. Instead of someone tries to come in and get her calmed down and move her out of the way. Because we're, we don't like lamenting. This is a different culture. She is lamenting. She is con- she's doing a negative confession of faith. It's vital that we see that and not assume resentment. Or we will miss the main point of this whole passage. It's found in verse 21. <clears throat> Look with me. It says this. It says, The Almighty has brought calamity upon me literally what she's saying is shaddai which means almighty has broken me or kids if you want to pay attention i haven't haven't addressed you in a while boys and girls hope i haven't lost you look at yours verse 21 it says god has used his power to break me see naomi says this powerful god has used bitterness to break me she has been broken by her suffering in Moab. And she sees God has done it. See, brokenness right now is such a big concept in church world. Everybody's talking about, oh, you've got to serve for your brokenness. And you've got to walk in the gospel for your brokenness. It's one of those terms that no one knows how to define. But everyone seems to know what it means somehow. And here Naomi gives us a good definition. The Almighty by His power has broken me. Like you would to a stick. God has used bitterness and come to Naomi and just said, uh... And broken her. This doesn't fit with the popular Christianity, does it? Does it? This is not how you sell you know, your best life now books. This is not how you make you win friends and influence people. This is, but this is the gospel. There is no promise of health and wealth in the gospel. Because God loves his people enough, he won't let us be happy in idolatry. He won't let us be happy in fake loves. He won't let us be happy in a superficial faith. Our ultimate happiness is found in Him. And when we get distracted by other things, often He comes along and He breaks us of those things and He does it through sending difficulty and trial and pain. Thomas Watson is a famous pastor from uh, several generations ago. Here's how he says it better than I could. He says, when a person is stupefied and his conscience grown lethargical, God, to cure him of this distemper, brings one burning calamity or another that he may startle him out of his security and make him return to him by repentance. So those of you who have confessed Christ, not all of you, but for some of you, does it seem as if your life is just almost being thwarted maybe? Do troubles just seem to keep coming? Do you almost feel like the maid? I just cleaned this up and now this other problem pops up. All I do is handle problems in my life, it seems like. It's not always the case. Please hear that. It's not always the case, but it is often the case that when bad things are happening in the life of a Christian, that perhaps your difficulties are from the Lord who is moving you to repentance. Repentance through breaking you of other things. Now, that that doesn't sound very hopeful, does it? That doesn't sound very happy. Like, okay, Pastor Sean, give me a happy. Well, think about how wonderful of news that is to your neighbors who don't know Christ. Here's what I mean. If we are evolutionary accidents, if, if we're living on an incidental planet that just happens to have the prerequisites for life and life just happened to have shown up, there's really no greater purpose than just passing on your DNA to the next generation. There's nothing substantial or transcendental about our lives. Which means there's, no, there's nothing we can really say to give meaning to the pain and the junk that every one of us go through. It's just a universe of chance. and Well, that's what happened to me. But what a testimony to people who are living in that narrative. If in our struggles, if in our difficulties, we don't try to put a positive spin We don't fake it so we'll look good. But if we faithfully and biblically are not afraid to lament and to say, My life stinks, the Almighty has done it, but He's still my God. See, showing God's power in the negative parts of our life is a great testimony because we're not governed by chance, we're governed by God's providence. Because God will do whatever it takes to restore his wayward children. So God breaks his children from idols. And then from that brokenness, we as his children often, we we then understand his hand. Look with me at the first part of verse 21. Naomi gets it. She says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. So, this is another confession of faith, and it's a confession of understanding. I mean, let's think through this. She says she went away full. It was just two weeks ago. Why did they leave? Why did she go away? Because there was a famine. They were starving. That doesn't sound like fullness to me. What does she mean? Well, what did she leave with? Her family. What that culture said to a woman, Your value in life, your purpose for existence is to have a husband and to have sons and to carry on the family name. She did it. She arrived. She had what she needed. Let her husband worry about feeding the family. That's the man's problem in her culture. Here, this is my problem, and my problem's handled. I'm good. I'm full. Okay, we, we got to take the clan over here. Okay, whatever. I got my babies. I got my husband. We're good. She was fulfilled, she had hope. She thought her life lacked nothing because she had what that culture said. But now she says God brought her back. Literally translated, we could translate this, God caused her to return. God forced her to return. Boys and girls, here's how I put it for you. She says this, she says, I walked away from the Lord happy. But he used sadness to bring me back. Because you see, boys and girls, sometimes when... When when we get sad, God is actually using that to drive us closer to Him. And here Naomi says that, that I was happy, God took away my happy and made me sad, and that sadness has brought me back to God's people. So if you've been playing with Christianity, if this is just kind of a hobby for you, if you don't really have a a vibrant, substantial faith, you're kind of confused right now. You're kind of wondering, I don't know if I know about this. Because I'm just going to say it like it is. A shallow faith has no categories for what Naomi is going through. This is completely just, I have no idea what Pastor son's is talking about. And she's not happy. We can't spin this. She's not happy. There is no joy here. She is at rock bottom. And in her brokenness, she's beginning to understand why God has done what he's done. Why he's put her there. Her dark path has been to get rid of her security and her family, of her hope, not in what God can give, but her hope in what a husband can give. Those things were not punishment. Don't hear me saying, oh, God comes along and says, oh, you're making an idol out of that? i got to spank you for that one. Get rid of it. No. God comes along and says, that is not what you're supposed to do. That's not going to fulfill you. That's not going to uplift you. You're not going to find security there. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to take that away. So in your thirst, you will then turn around and find the living water that I can offer you. That's what God is doing here. Because he's trying to empty her. That's why she came back empty. So God could fill her with something so much better. You see, Naomi's not happy. But she's starting to understand and she believes God knows what he's doing. And that's what it means to live under the providence of a powerful God. He does what he thinks is best. I mean, we try, but God keeps breaking out of the cages we construct for him, doesn't he? He doesn't do what we tell him to do very often. He does what he wants to do. He's very recalcitrant that way, isn't he? Because he knows what he's doing. Derek Thomas is a friend of mine. He's the assistant pastor at First Pres in Columbia. And he says it this way. I think this was your meditative quote at the beginning of your bulletin. He says this. He says, Providence is not an acknowledgment that we can make sense of what God is doing. It is an acknowledgment that he can make sense of it. And that is all that matters. We are not called upon to explain providence but to trust the God of providence. That's where Naomi is. She doesn't get it. I I am not going to try to convince you. Oh, she understands this now. She understands God knows what he's doing, and I'm going to submit to it. That's where he has taken her in her brokenness. See, without the emptying sadness of her life, she never would have got that. She never would have left Moab. She never would have returned to the land of promise, and she gets that. So the chapter ends with almost a throwaway phrase, really, in verse 22. It says, the beginning of the barley harvest. But if you remember, this chapter begins with a famine, and now it ends with a harvest in the same place, and that is hope. Naomi and Ruth have arrived right when food and work are plentiful. Right when the community is rejoicing. We don't know how long the famine's been over. It's been at least 10 years since she left. But it was a famine so bad they left. And now they're having a harvest. And there's even more hope here at the end of the chapter if we can see it. Because Naomi was wrong. She didn't come back empty. She has Ruth. The Moabite. Who turned from the life she knew to follow after the living God. And be part of his people. See, Bethlehem has hope, is what this writer is telling us. Ruth has hope. Maybe there's hope for Naomi too at this point in the story. So what do we do with this? How do we, who don't have to worry about harvest and famine, there's always stuff at at, at the pig we can go buy? I mean, what, what do we do with this? Well, when Naomi wants to be called Mara in verse 20, meaning bitter, She actually brings up a famous story that they would have known about. One of the famous stories in the Pentateuch. The original readers would have remembered this. The original readers of Ruth would have thought of this story. In Exodus 15, right after the parting of the Red Sea. If you know the story. They part the Red Sea. They go through... Red Sea comes back, chariots are all drowned, and then they have this huge worship service. It's a very long psalm of praise in Exodus. They have this great, glorious worship service. They're they're fulfilled. God has saved us from the most powerful army on earth. It's awesome. And then they walk three little days, and they find some springs, and they go to drink it, and it's bitter. And so they call the place Mara because it's bitter water, and they can't drink. And so what do they do after having seen this God come and break all ten Egyptian gods? After seeing Him drown the Egyptian army? After this wonderful worship service? What do they do with their bitter water? They complain. They whine. They moan. And they grumble to Moses. Why would you bring us out here? Moses cries out to God for help. What do we do, Lord? And God does not strike them down for doubting. He doesn't send a plague. He doesn't say, I just drowned the Egyptian army for you. He tells Moses, throw a log in there. Moses throws a log in there and the water immediately becomes sweet. They shouldn't have named it Mara anymore. They should have named it Naomi, actually. But they kept it as the waters of Mara. And then he enters into another covenant with them. It's a beautiful passage in Exodus 15. He comes to them and he says... I will be your God. I will no longer send plagues like I did in Egypt. I will be your healer. Just like I healed the waters, so too I will heal you. It's a landmark in Israel's history where God shows himself as the one who makes bitter things sweet. As the one who makes broken things whole. And Naomi may not have meant it, but the original readers would catch it. That God has taken Naomi to a bitter life but he promises to be a healer and he's going to make her life whole again by his grace through the rest of the story because that's what god does he takes thankless grumblers and those who question his goodness because god loves to show sinners his grace And we know the full story. We know that he did it ultimately through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That God himself didn't just look at our pain and our bitterness. He actually entered into a bitter life. That he walked a path of temptation and suffering. He entered the bitter world of sin. The book of Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. Can you imagine what that's like? have to deal with the temptation. You and I can't because we always eventually give in to temptation. But he withstood it every time. Wow. He took on his share of suffering as well. And when the time came, Jesus Christ grabbed the bitter cup of God's wrath. I mean, we sing it so easily, and on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. But what does it tell us? That In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, I don't want to drink it. But he took the cup of God's wrath, and he drank that bitter cup to the very bottom so you wouldn't have to. So you would not have to be Mara, but you could be delightful before the Lord. Because Jesus Christ has absorbed that wrath for you. That's what it means when we say things like He was wounded for our transgressions and He was broken for our sins so that by His scars we would be healed. It means that we were turned from bitter into sweet by His blood. Because God loves to show grace and mercy to sinners. I can't give you Answers for all the difficulties in your life, all the trials you've gone through. I I can't just tell you tit for tat, well, here's why, here's why, here's why. But I can point you to Jesus Christ who's been there if you're in a dark providence. This Jesus Christ, who in His resurrection... The promise of Scripture is that he's actually now seated at the right hand of God. And so you can go to this Jesus Christ. And he can take you by the hand. And he can take you to the very throne of his Father. The providential God who who does understand why you went through what you went through. He can help you make sense of the bitterness in your life. The struggles in your life. The difficulties in your life. Because he's your mediator and savior. So if you know Jesus Christ, do you know him like that? Not just the Jesus you sing songs about, not just the happy Jesus who when things are going well, you're like, oh, praise God, it's a great day. But can you say, Lord Jesus, this is the worst day of my life. I trust you, but this is hard. Help me in my bitterness to be made whole again. Can you do that? I hope you allow yourself, Christian, the freedom to do that. And if you don't know Christ, and if you would like to know a Christ like that, not the happy, clappy Jesus that's so often presented, but the substantial Jesus who, when things are falling apart, can be your anchor, simply cast off everything you think Christianity is, everything you've called religion, and simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And He will grab you and hold you. And in your brokenness, He can help you. If you would like to do that, do it now. Don't wait. Let's pray together. Father God, we confess your providence, Lord, is difficult. That it's so easy to teach our children and to say ourselves that you know, your providence is your most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all your creatures and all their actions. But Lord, when the bad things happen, when the bottom falls out, and when we are lying Broken, bruised, in a shambles of our life, it's harder to say, whatever my God does and ordains is right. Lord, as you're doing your work of sending us difficult things to make us repent, would you also bring us the repentance? Would you grant that we would repent and follow after you in new obedience? Would you grant, Lord, that through these things we would cling to Jesus Christ for help and for understanding. And Lord, for those who do not know you, we ask that you would even now reveal yourself, draw all people into your kingdom by giving them the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.